Hello and welcome to Credit Shift. I'm Paul Sweeney. I am co-founder and chief strategy officer here at Webio. And today I am again joined by our CEO and co-founder, Cormac O'Neill. And we will be exploring some of the recent news stories, events, reports and trends in the credit industry. Okay, let's dive into some of the details. In general industry news, previously on Credit Score, we touched upon the issue of discretionary uh, commission arrangements or DCAs where a broker could alter the level of interest that could be put on a product or service they were selling, not for the buyer's benefit, but to increase their own level of commission. Well-known UK advocate for financial service fairness and education, Martin Lewis, covered the issue on his BBC programme on February the 6th. And it is speculated that it resulted in over 260,000 people registering complaints by the end of the week. Carolyn Ireland at creditstrategy.co.uk makes the excellent point that it's difficult to predict the inbound traffic for any service, especially one that hasn't happened before or hasn't happened in a long time. But we still think that this is one to keep your eye on in terms of uh, things happening in the general credit environment. The Financial Conduct Authority has announced that multiple insurance firms have agreed to pause sales of guaranteed asset protection insurance. GAP, GAP Insurance, is typically sold alongside car finance and covers the difference between the car's purchase price or outstanding finance and its current market value. If anything was to happen to the car before the finance is paid off, then the insurance would pay out. However, the regulator, upon investigation under a fairness principle, the FCA found that only 6% of the amount customers paid in premiums was ever paid out in claims, and it cited examples where some 70% of the premium has been paid back to the seller of the policy. Barclays is set to take over Tesco Bank. Over 5 million customers will be affected and over 2,800 employees. What caught my attention in the release, however, was the emphasis that Uh, Barclays gave on increased distribution for their unsecured loan products, which also gave them the ability to increase their ability to offer deposit accounts, and was also an opportunity to leverage Tesco's club card program across the whole Barclays organization. I find this particularly interesting because it's an example of where different data sources can be brought together to maybe increase their ability to both offer loans and maybe manage the risk around loans. Does anything on this resonate with you, Cormac? Anything catch your attention particularly about the news this week? I I really think we should start by wishing our listeners, uh, all two of them, your your and my partners, uh, a very happy Valentine's Day, Paul, the day that's in it, you know. Um, (laughs) So I I think it's only appropriate that we, we start that way and, you know, Dinner will be ready this evening. Um, I'll be cooking so, my own dinner. <laughs> will you be? Will you? No, I'm, after, I'm, I'm on duty. After not, I'm on duty. <laughs> after not bringing breakfast in bed this morning, Paul, you're you're on. on well, that's exactly <laughs> exactly the case here. So, happy Valentine's Day to all our listeners. I hope you got um, great plans for this evening. Okay, so a few things I didn't even know you could get. Um, a GAP insurance uh, as as a kind of like a, a cash buyer of cars. Um, I'm not a big car person. I don't tend to spend a whole pile of money on them. Um, I didn't know that existed. So it just mm. it sounds like it's a super lucrative uh, insurance um, 
product. Uh, so that's um, so they are saying that it is unfair. Is that it? Is that the uh, yeah? It's, the, uh, the claim that's been made here. Yeah, the, yeah. I, I think what what interested me about this one was that it's under fairness. So mm. you know you're collecting a premium, but maybe the risk isn't real because you're only paying out six percent um, yeah. of premiums on claims. So that risk yeah. isn't real, and therefore your product isn't a fair product. It's not gotcha. offering offering fair yeah. value. And I, I yeah. really think that this um, duty of care fairness principle is really a deep, deep thing. Uh, it's going to be a really, I, I think it's going to be really disruptive, uh, for in a good way, disruptive principle in just how commerce is, is conducted. Yeah. And I'm wondering, the, the people who have bought this insurance, I wonder how many of them genuinely knew exactly what they were buying. Um, you know, so well, it, I, I think those... it's just a, two two little data points that mm. I think we'll see more um, throughout 2024 as the regulator gets better and better at kind of processing yeah. these cases. Um, so, so... I think we'll see more and more of them. I agree. So that was the first one that jumped off the page. The second one was the, the first item you had uh, just in terms of unpredictability of inbound calls into into a contact center. We're very, very familiar with this. Um, and, you know, we've, I guess, COVID is a prime example of, of when spikes happened in inbound traffic coming into contact centers. And again, you know, that's an area that um, we specialize in and it's something that we know a lot about and uh, something that we've got a really good track record in, in managing those inbound calls and how to automate them and triage them so you're not getting slammed um, by inbound contact. And we all know there is nothing as frustrating as spending your time in hold in an endless loop, listening and waiting and finding out you're 1,226th in a queue. Um, can be very frustrating. So, um, so yeah, we've got a lot of experience in, in, in that area and how to handle it. I think there's more and more technology coming to the fore that can handle those type of bottlenecks when it comes to inbound calls. Uh, the Tesco Bank and Barclays Bank seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? I, have, I actually missed that. I didn't see that in the in the press lately. So um, uh, Tesco, an ex-employer of mine, way, way, way back in the day. So, um, yeah, well, I missed that. The hard, the, hard edge of re- the hard edge of retail, right? There's maybe no harder business than retail. No, tough, tough business. You tough learn business. a lot in retail, I'll tell you yeah. that. You do, for sure. Mm. Okay, moving on to section mm. two, fintech, buy now, pay later, AI, and related news. A firm, the BNPL player, came out with strong results for Q4 2023. Uh, as long as bumps in card volume, number of active users, they're all on the way up. But it also said that delinquencies were flat, while transactions per customer were up 24% to 4.4 transactions. So people using it more and more. A firm has deposit account function and has and used to have many of the customer reward features of traditional credit cards. It has dumped that recently. And last week we reported that it had moved to a subscription-based service. Still, the headline here, a firm as a leading player in the field doing very well, um, managing its delinquencies very well and people starting to use it more and more frequently. Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, you might recall, Paul, that I, I tried buy now, pay later. Um, November time, I think it was, uh, was my first ever. I said, Hey, look, give this a go. So my final payment and my three installments went out this month and you get a kind of a, 
nice feeling when that happens. Get a little rush. What is it? What's the uh, oxy relief? I was going to say uh, oxytocin or whatever the the, yeah. the, the the thing is. You kind of get like, oh, that's nice. That's my last payment gone. You know, kind of felt good to have that yeah. fully repaid, and now I can. Um, Tap up the machine again and, and use my buy now pay later again, which I absolutely will do. I I will use it again. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, you know, I got three months free credit. Um, so I'm I'm turning into a cheerleader for buy now pay later. That's that's hey, listen like all these things. If it's managed responsibly, yeah. it'll be fine. Correct, correct. That's absolutely one hundred percent. Thank you, Paul. You're dead right on that. Uh, our next story is that UK retailers spent a whopping $1.27 billion on card processing fees in 2023. And the British Retail Consortium is particularly annoyed about the 27% rise in scheme fees. The trade body is proposing that larger transactions should be charged as a fixed fee, not ad val- I think it's not ad valorem, uh, which is like, I'm guessing, uh, as a percentage of the total being bought. An idea likely to meet with fierce resistance from the schemes. So I think the the headline there, over a billion, like tipping on 1.3 billion uh, in card processing fees, that's coming straight out of their pockets. Mm-hmm. So that's a big number. Well, I presume there's a lot of them pass that on to the end consumer, right? The card processing fees. So um, it is coming out of their pockets uh, is where that's coming out of. Absolutely. And I've no um, idea... Ad valorum means I got to put my hand up there and go, but I'm going to Google it there in a few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It would be handy if I knew how to, how to say it. having read it. Yeah. Um, An air wallets survey of SMBs highlights that embedded finance opportunities for payment providers uh, is that there's actually very little brand loyalty attached to the SMBs use of it. 82% 82% of merchants say they would change payment provider if their um, their uh, internet service provider or their software vendor offered a similar solution. So I guess the merchants are like, I don't care if I'm using Klarna, if I'm using Afterpay, if I'm using whatever solution. They don't really mind uh, very low loyalty from the merchant's point of view but i suspect that customers will be fairly loyal to the solution that they use mm. the, the switching um the pain of switching must be very low um if that's the case you know i mean uh, if 82 percent are, are saying that they, they'll change providers it must be very easy just to switch from one to the other you know so at that point, then it's going to be yeah, whoever's the cheapest. If it's a, if it's a case of flick a switch on, flick a switch off. Yeah, yeah it, um, it maybe it maybe shows that the the customer, the end user, like yourself in the case you just uh, mm-hmm. just went through, it's it's if your preference on checkout is to use a firm versus Afterpay, then yeah. it's providing you with the solution that you want is the important point. Yeah, I, I, again, I wouldn't be loyal. To the one that I used, I mean, the ease of use is we we spoke about this before. It's just so so easy. It was unbelievably easy. Now I know we're talking about small ticket items. It wasn't a big purchase by any stretch, but um, it was just so so easy. I mean, I, if every one of them is that easy, you're just going to pick. I was going to see whoever's the cheapest, but the, you know, if there's no cost to them, it doesn't matter. Well, to it me ties in Cormac with the earlier points about like if. 
if one of the um, buy now pay later players entices you to be a subscriber, then you're like an Amazon Prime type customer. Mm-hmm. You will exactly. use it. Correct. And that's yeah. the job is to turn you job. into an Amazon Prime type mm-hmm. user. Um, yeah. And that changes the nature of the. It the does because there's something in it for me then to use yeah. A over B. So, yeah. Correct. Gotcha. Uh, interesting little tidbit uh, from. Um, Industry player Chargeback 911. It's an American company that does an annual cardholder dispute index, which is worth a read. If only to grasp that the there's an average of 5.7 disputes raised by each customer every year in the USA. I, I thought that number was extraordinary. Um, and when I looked into the report, it was basically saying that instead of cancelling a purchase or writing to a retailer to say hey i'd like to manage a returns process what they just did is just just stop the payment or disputed the payment on a card it it was um more driven by consumer habits than anything else but it really raised the issue that if you are offering a credit product like that the amount of interactions with your customers that you have to manage is seriously inflated if if these are um yeah, customer use habits. It, it's a. I think you'd need to dig if there is detail behind that number. It seems it, very, very high to me. Five. It's, so that it's means a, if I'm reading this right, so in a year, every individual has um, initiated a chargeback five point seven times. Um, yeah, but, that right? Yeah, but it's 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 because they're. It, it's like a, they're not. It's 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 basically the wrong UI. So mm-hmm. they're using the wrong um, mechanism for stopping a purchase or for running a returns process, and they're choosing to do it this way. By stopping the payment, it doesn't go out of their account, and they can, mm. you know, handle it a different way. But it's um, it just struck me that it's worth digging into because of consumer it habits. Is. I'd 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 be worried about that one if it became a a more widespread thing in the UK. Um, The last point under the industry news uh, was 35% of global e-commerce sales now go through marketplaces, according to an absolute goldmine of an omni-channel research report available from RetailX. Retail CIOs themselves are planning major systems upgrades to meet the needs of channel-hopping customers. This will likely trigger reassessments of their payment suppliers and as yet more bad news for incumbents saddled with legacy platforms. Um, I think this is just, uh, if you had said that 35% of global e-commerce sales now go through marketplaces, like that's your headline number. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a massive number. Uh, I know a number of companies that specialize in marketplace management, marketplace pricing, marketplace uh, customer service. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a massive it's a massive problem because you're going to be selling your product across maybe a yes. hundred different marketplaces. How do you manage that? How do you, how, like, where does money, like, where does the offer gets made? How do you balance your pricing? How do you support customers who maybe bought through one of those, these marketplaces but bought your brand? I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's just very interesting as a trend. It is. That's a 25% to me seems really large. It's a massive number. Like it's a major sure driver within the Amazon sales figures is their marketplace yeah. numbers. 
yeah maybe one maybe one like maybe worth coming back on and, and looking at um like a, like a lot of people that are major retailers are still sending sending products into marketplaces or if they have overstock will push it into marketplaces so you know again as we as we said earlier mm-hmm. retail's hard um it's very very complicated very very complex um yeah you know might be worthwhile getting someone in to talk to us about this as a as an interview it's a complex area sure is okay our final section here is on recent reports we try to find reports that might be of use to you in your own strategic planning things that raise issues that may not have hit your radar but that you might want to start thinking about one of these areas um is well the the three areas we're looking at here are all interconnected today it's open banking sovereign (laughs) cloud and generative ai so Webio are always talking to our customers about their attitudes to and projects in open banking. And we think it has real potential to add value. But the truth seems to be that adoption has been sluggish at best. 11% of British consumers are active users of open banking, which is an increase of 7% from December 2021. In June 2023, 9.7 million open banking payments were made, which is close to a 90% increase on the previous year. That's still a very low number, right? Uh, Even given all the potential upsides we see that could be released by better data sharing, lower cost transactions, and variable payment schedules, open banking hasn't been the transformative force for good that we were hoping for. It's well worth digging into some of the details shared in the article, which we've attached to the show notes. Again, just making the point that while we do think that open banking has transformative potential, interesting to track some of the adoption numbers and maybe adjust our planning accordingly. Another few phrases that are coming up in strategic conversations are the terms digital sovereignty and data sovereignty. So digital sovereignty refers to an organization's ability to govern the digital technologies used within it. This includes the power to regulate the use of data and the internet, as well as the ability to control access to digital infrastructure. Data sovereignty, on the other hand, refers to the idea that data is subject to the laws and governance of the country in which it is collected or stored. This means that if a company collects data in one country, it must comply with the data protection laws of that country, even if it stores the data in another country. In 2023, Accenture released a report, Sovereign Cloud Comes of Age in Europe, which raises a host of issues in relation to these concepts. In short, being compliant, being resilient, and being in control are key concepts here. Accenture's position, this is uh, some manner of being hybrid or multi-cloud, but I understand many of these benefits may come from just being containerized and having a microservices-based architecture. Uh, To this, I believe anyone will have to build their AI under AI sovereignty. So I've just made that phrase up, but I believe it's a part of that continuum. I think each country will be building out its own data center infrastructure to host its own AI under its own rules. So it'll have its large language models at a national level. The data you use to train your AI will, for instance, 
fall under this kind of AI sovereignty. Sending metadata thrown out to your training tools might breach data and digital sovereignty. We believe that every company will have to have its own language model or network of models that it trains on its own enterprise data. So this will occur within the national and regional sovereignty rules and regulations. And I think it was very interesting this week that NVIDIA uh, became valued at $1.8 trillion this week, surpassing Amazon. So as a person with responsibility for strategy or with responsibility for contributing to the strategic position of your company, I think it's very much worthwhile considering how these wider data sovereignty, digital sovereignty, AI sovereignty issues will line up over the next uh, 24 months and indeed over the next five years, how you plan on, uh, <clears throat> you know, plan your data flows, how you're managing that and what you expect um, to be able to get out of that kind of um, attention. And one of the things that I'd add as a final point here, Cormac, is the the ability of a company to control this data, understand where it's going, et cetera. For enterprises, it's pretty much about the flexibility. It's not just about control, but you have the control so that you can offer the flexibility and finesse to your own customers. And we're definitely seeing that with some of our larger customers, the ability to change things all the way down your stack to meet their requirements is yeah. Just, yeah. just something you've got to be able to do. Look, this, this this is something that's always been on our radar before we've had these phrases like digital sovereignty or you know um, data sovereignty or digital sovereignty. And I like your new one there, Paul, AI sovereignty. You know, we have um, different customers in different um, uh, areas, different locations in different geos. And depending on what their requirements are, whether they're customers based in the UK that must have their data held in the UK, um, you know, we'll have an instant there in the UK to comply with that, to keep within our SLAs with our, with our customers, or whether they're in the wider EU and, and can't uh, have their data go outside the EU. And we've had uh, an issue around that recently in where one of our um, channel providers switched from the EU to, to the US and, and we had to change. We had a move from, from that provider to a, a provider that held all the data in the EU. So, you know, this is nothing new to us. Um, it's good to have it um, kind of like catchphrase, so to speak. Um, you know, and it's something that, that, that we're passionate about. And, you know, like you mentioned there about companies having their own um, uh, AI models. That's exactly what we're doing now in terms of our customized collections models uh, by our customers that's, that are trained only on, on the data that's, that's, um, that we have and that, that, that we gather. So, look, I think you've hit the nail on the head here. That's an incredible valuation, 1.8 trillion. I missed, I missed that one. Sorry, that's just uh, jumping out. But this is something that is, is just you know, front and center for us uh, and will be for any company that's dealing in this area with, with customer data and how they're using it. Um, so uh, it's only going to become more and more uh, important. And look, you know, we're comfortable with that because it's pretty much in our DNA from day one. Um, so in a way, we kind of welcome, uh, you know, regulation as long as it's sensible. Um uh, in this whole area of data and, and data retention. So, 
again, I, I agree with you. Let's keep, let's watch it. Let's see um, how it develops. I, I don't know if you saw the number during the week being put up by Sam Altman from OpenAI. Um, Sam basically put um, a number. I say Sam like we're, we're buddies and we hang out together. Um, yeah. He put out a, a number that he was looking to raise. I don't know if you saw that number, Cormac. He's looking to raise uh, money I, to build AI no. chips. Go on. I didn't see that. What was it, Paul? He says that they need to raise seven trillion dollars to change the global economy. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a it's a rather large number, right? It is a large number, but I I, I personally uh, seven trillion dollars. Uh, seven trillion. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, it, it's I think that's ten percent of all the available money. Um, it's um, but I, I think what it's what it's putting out there as a signpost is that digitization is going to continue. Uh, AI is going to be a large part of the digitization, but the digitization comes at a cost. You, yeah. you don't run AI for free. You don't run digital services for free. It costs money to power them. Uh, you have to have chips and servers and all manner of technology stack in place to support them. And that has to add up as an economic proposition. And I think yeah. a lot of people offering very data intensive processing intensive services for ai are going to find the economic pinch over the next 2024 because you just can't keep on throwing money at at a, a digital service and not be able to monetize it or not be able to show benefit for it and and say well why are we doing this and what you know mm-hmm. is it making uh, yeah conversations more effective is it helping customers self-serve is it helping us sell more like the the, the 2024 is going to be the year where enterprises are going to ask some pretty hard questions about where's the value here okay that's it for our week for credit shift this week we've uh kept it to a tidy 25 or 26 minutes under the half hour which is our new target thank you again for joining us we hope that the information you're getting from these helps you get your head around the topics stay on top of them and bring you some new information that's useful for your own strategic planning keep an eye on the credit shift channel and the webio.com website as we will be recording some very interesting interviews with industry players over the next few weeks 